Jodcast. Our trolls are of higher quality than yours. With James Bamber, Ian Harrison, Niall McCallum, Haratina Mogashanu, Ian Morrison and Benjamin Shaw. The Jodcast, June 2016 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Ben and joining me in the studio are James and Niall. Hello. Hi. James, we know who you are because you're our resident astronomer interrogator extraordinaire. You seem to make me do that every month, so... uh... But you've never presented with us before, so why don't you tell us who you are and and what you're doing here in general? Hi, yeah, Uh, I'm James. I'm looking at something which is quite unusual for our department, which is evolved stars, because most people are using kind of radio telescopes where I'm in the optical and infrared wavelengths. Excellent. And Niall, this is your first time with us. You've said hello on the show once before. I've said hello once, but I do edit occasionally, though. I'm not a uh, wannabe jodcaster i do do things so yeah so i'm uh, here doing an msc also in um, i'm working on weak gravitational lensing excellent oh well hopefully we'll have you on the show a bit more often now although you'll be leaving soon presumably if you're an msc student that is true yeah we're <laughs> being kicked out in august i think so august right. or september yeah mm. so over so you'll be starting to write up presumably yeah, yeah, that's that's happening around now, I think. Yeah, yeah um, I think we've been doing it as we go, really, haven't we? Yeah, it's just the writing is hell. Arduous. Yeah. Oh, oh, I know, <laughs> I know. But now you're going to be writing up, you're not really going to have much of a chance to do many more Jodcasts, so we need to. this this needs to be a good one for you. Because from now you just won't have time to do anything else other than write and cry. And of course interrogate astronomers if you're James Bamber. So that's, that's true. That's, yeah. is your yeah. resident job. So. Yeah, yeah, we need, we need... I don't know who we're going to replace you with when you leave. <laughs> In the show this time, Haratina interviews Tawa Waka about the Matariki, and Ian Morrison and Haratina Mogshanu take a look at what's happening in the June night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Ian Harrison with this month's news. In the news this month, Macha's return, Martian tsunamis, and an inflatable space station. A previously disfavoured theory received a boost this month, with two articles both proposing that black holes and dark matter could in fact be one and the same. The superficially plausible idea that the two most famous invisible things in the universe could in fact be related has existed for a long time, but is not the favourite of cosmologists. The most widely supported theories for the nature of dark matter, some matter which feels the force of gravity but does not otherwise interact and makes up five times more of the universe than ordinary matter, involve dark matter being made of some as-yet-undiscovered subatomic particle. These are generally referred to as weakly interacting mass particles, or WIMPs, and are the subject of many searches, both direct searches seeking to create them in particle colliders, and indirect ones seeking to detect the glow given off by the extremely rare interactions of the WIMP particles out in space or here on Earth. However, An alternative explanation exists, in which dark matter is made up of the same stuff as ordinary matter, just in physical states which do not significantly emit or absorb enough light for us to detect. The dark matter units in these theories are known as massive compact halo objects, or machos, and can be made up of things like black holes or brown dwarfs, high-mass planets which are not quite big enough to be stars. The idea is that the machos would be massive and abundant enough to look like dark matter, but not emit or absorb enough electromagnetic radiation to be visible to available telescopes. Macho theories have existed since the 1980s, but have been disfavoured by a number of observational results in the intervening years. 
gravitational microlensing experiments look for the fluctuations in brightness of distant stars caused by the bending of light by individual machos as they pass between us and the star. A number of experiments, including machos, Eros and Ogle, have looked for this effect and failed to find much of it within our galaxy, certainly not enough for there to be sufficient machos to account for dark matter. This can be combined with theoretical calculations as to how disruptive machos would be to binary stars orbiting each other. Large machos would kick binaries out of their mutual orbits. These two together place an upper limit of 20% on how much dark matter can be made of machos, and tells us that any macho must be more than 10 but less than 100 times the mass of the Sun, an extremely narrow range by astronomical standards. However, a new paper published in Physical Review Letters this month lashes on to an interesting fact. The black holes which caused the gravitational wave event detected by the LIGO experiment last autumn lie in exactly this mass range. The paper, from astronomers at Johns Hopkins University in the US, pointed this out and also calculated the expected rate at which such mergers should take place, again finding an answer consistent with that estimated by gravitational wave astronomers, the observed merger. We see the effect of dark matter from very early on in the history of the universe, such as in the structure in the cosmic microwave background, at times before stars were formed. This means that if black holes are macho dark matter, they must be a particular type, primordial black holes. Primordial black holes are not formed by the collapse of a star, but by the monolithic collapse of high-density regions in the early universe. Such high-density regions were rare, however, but our knowledge of the statistics of fluctuations of the density of matter in the early universe allowed cosmologist Simeon Bird and colleagues to work out how often primordial black holes of around 30 solar masses would merge if enough of them existed in our galaxy to be dark matter. Their answer of around 5 mergers per cubic gigaparsec per year fits nicely within the LIGO estimate of between 2 and 53 per cubic gigaparsec per year for events like the now famous GW150914. Circumstantial evidence possibly, but the scenario is certainly not ruled out. Some further support for the idea also came from Alexander Kuszlinski, a cosmologist who works at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Kuszlinski also released a paper this month suggesting that 30 solar mass macho black holes could also be responsible for the excessive patchiness of the cosmic infrared and cosmic X-ray backgrounds, the CIB and CXB. Observations of these two, widely separated in wavelength and energy, has shown that they display the same kind of fluctuations. Kuszlinski points out that one way to emit a lot of light over a very broad range is with a black hole sucking in matter, which is heated by friction in the accretion disk. If primordial black holes were present early in the universe, they could perform this role and produce the correlated pattern of hotspots seen in the CIB and CXB. It remains to be seen, but if the hitherto disfavoured macho scenario receives further boosts from gravitational wave observations. As more and more black hole mergers are observed, we will come to know the true mass distribution and merger rates of the objects. 
finding whether or not they are consistent with the properties of macho dark matter. Also in the news this month, new observations of the planet Mars have been suggested to show evidence of a tsunami on the red planet some 3.4 billion years ago. The subject of liquid water on Mars today remains a controversial one, but the idea that it existed on the surface billions of years ago has grown steadily more accepted since the Mariner 9 probe landed on the planet in 1971. The new research, published this month in the journal Science Reports, dealt with the subject of the impact of a meteoroid on the surface of the huge ocean which it has been proposed used to cover much of the northern Martian hemisphere. Whilst evidence of the coastline of this northern ocean is visible in many places, in others it appears to disappear. The work by a group of researchers led by Alexis Rodriguez of the Planetary Science Institute in Tucson, Arizona, suggests that at least some of these missing portions of coastline were wiped out by massive tsunamis caused by meteoroid impacts in the distant past. By using data from a number of Mars observation satellites, Rodriguez and collaborators saw geological formations corresponding to the rush of water from the tsunami inland, covering an area the size of Texas or Turkey. Also visible is evidence of the retreat of this water, in smaller channels cut by the trickle of water back into the ocean. The tsunami would have been up to 120 metres high and consist of the chilly, salty but liquid water present on Mars at the time. Further evidence was also found for a second of these mega-tsunami a few million years later. The apparent presence of a second sea level much lower than the first in the region suggests that Mars's climate grew much colder in the intervening time, meaning this time the tsunami consisted of a slow-moving slush of water ice. The tsunami also apparently never receded, instead freezing in place on the shore, leaving behind large, visible icy deposits. Similar shoreline lobe structures can also be seen from tsunamis here on Earth, as can analogues of the isolated pockets of water which could have been left behind, which may also have been ideal places for life to evolve. Some of the team involved in the work hope to travel to Tibet later this year to investigate life in similar lakes. And finally, astronauts and cosmonauts aboard the International Space Station were provided with extra working space this month with the successful addition of a new inflatable attachment to the station. The Bigelow Expandable Activity Module, or BEAM, provides an extra car-sized space for those on the ISS, but shrinks to only a fifth of that volume for launch and transportation, an extremely useful property to help reduce the huge expenses of space travel. BEAM consists of flexible Kevlar-like ring supports, with multiple layers of fabric and polymer foam in between. After an aborted attempt to inflate the room last month, the procedure went smoothly this time, with NASA astronaut Jeff Williams reporting an expected, but probably annoying, popcorn-like sound consistently over the seven-hour inflation of the module. This is the first time such an inflatable module has been used for human habitation, and will hopefully pave the way for more, cheaper biomes, both in Earth orbit or on the Moon. Thanks for that, Ian. 
Now, um, Haratina will interview Tewa Waka about Matariki, the Maori New Year. Kua fitirea te putahi manawa yu matua te kore Kua puta ko te po, ko te a, ko te pū, ko te weu, ko te more, ko te aka E takoto ana ngā tsua nei Wakarongo ki te tangi o ngā manu Ngā manu tui, tui, tui a, tui a i runga, tui a i raro, tui a i roto, tui a i waho, ka rongo ki te po, ka rongo ki te ao, ko ia ko matariki puanga putara, whakataura patautoru, takurua atutahi, tahere maira, marerehe o tonga, ki te punga tauha o te waka, whakatau i hū. Te mataua Maui ki te teki teki o ngā rangi Ka tifa te pō Ko te pō nui, ko te pō roa Ko te pō uri uri, te pō tango tango, te pō kere kere, ka puta, ka puta. Ki te whaiau, ki te au maramande, tihe mauriora. Welcome to Aotearoa, New Zealand. I am Haritina Mogoshanu, your storyteller from the Southern Hemisphere. And tonight I have a very special guest, Toa Waka, who is the Vice President of the Society for Maori Astronomy Research and Traditions. Kia ora. Kia ora. I believe this is our national authority on Maori astronomy and traditions and uh, this organization is also known as the Smart Trust. Toa is also the Maori strategy project manager for Otago University and he holds so many hats but one that I hold very dear is Maori astronomy and his love for stars. So, um, why don't you introduce yourself to and um... Sure. Kia ora. Kia ora tato. That is, greetings and welcome to you all from afar and from near. The reason why I hold astronomy so close to my heart is probably because my mum, Raiha, she was, is an astronomer and she's so humble that she would not look at herself as being an astronomer but an amateur astronomer however the knowledge that she has shared over the years had inspired me as a child when I was like from six years old right through to my teens and obviously into my adulthood about our sky and what was happening in it so walking about in my hometown in Aotearoa New Zealand down in the city the capital city of Wellington we would be out on the coastline at night time and we'd be looking out at a dark sky from Hongueka Marae, from Hongueka Bay, which is in Purirua, just north of Wellington. 
And my mum would show us all the stars that would sit over the top of our landscape. And it would be special parts of our landscape, like our island, like our sacred mountain. And she would say, these are the things that we see here every year. And although my mum, who was very supportive of her Māori tanga, and coming from her, her mother and father, who descended from her mother, who was a holder of Māori astronomical knowledge, what we call tātai arorangi, it was obvious for me that my mum felt more comfortable to speak about these things from a Western astronomical perspective, because at that time, not many people believed that our Māori culture had a lot of this knowledge, because it was so hidden. And so over the time and duration, I've been working with many like-minded tohunga or experts um, in their own right that have moved into the fields of astrophysics. One of my colleagues and co-chair for the Society of Māori Astronomy Research and Traditions Trust is the first Māori astrophysicist for New Zealand and the world, I guess, <laughs> Dr. Pauline Harris, um, and many other very special tohunga and leaders or expert leaders of our country, like Hotiroa Kerr and Hector Busby, who have helped to revitalise our connection to our ancient knowledge that affirms Māori and their scientific observation, exploration across the planet and across the universe. And so much of our knowledge has been buried within genealogical charts, and it's been very awesome to be able to share our combined knowledge and information to be able to create innovative ways to share that with our people in Aotearoa New Zealand. Both, First and foremost, we want to empower our own people, the Māori people, to bring them back to the realisation that this knowledge is very special. And so I guess that's the reason why we're talking here today, is because we're coming into the month of Matariki, the Māori New Year. Right. Well, you have mentioned Māori astronomy several times, and I have to admit that when I came here 11 years ago from that central part of Europe called Romania, I had no idea what Māori astronomy was about, and I can imagine that some of our listeners would be curious to understand what that is, and I, I was hoping you can give us a, a little bit of an overview on, on Māori astronomy. Why is Māori astronomy different from anything else that we, we know? Well, the most beautiful thing that I like about radio and podcasting is that it requires two ears and no voice because you are only to listen to the words. And the one thing that I think is most effective, that is when you are in the middle of the night and you hear the stories of Māori, what we call, or what have been renowned as become as legends, they are actually our vehicles to pass on knowledge to the next generations. So Māori astronomy, tātai arorangi, or tātai kokorangi, that is, different dialects of Māori language from different tribes recognising the genealogical connections between 
our people and the stars. And if we are to understand our connection to the stars, then it gives us an ability to understand where we are in the universe, where we are and where we want to be and where we want to go. So Maori think that they are coming from the stars. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I I, I think in <clears throat> the modern context, the, the average Maori person looks to the stars with wonder and they know that we have a connection to these fetu, these stars that are, you know, above us every night and also in the day. And that's the that's the beautiful thing is to know that those stars are actually around us night and day. I mean, Tamanui Tara, the sun, is one of our stars. And it is by far one of the most important stars. So if we are to say, yes, do Māori do recognise our connection to the stars? Through our genealogical charts, we have identified our very different process to connect to those stars with genealogies through our trees, through the, you know, the, the growth of a seed into a taproot and recognizing that that seed that grows into a taproot and then into a seedling is almost synonymous with the processes of the Big Bang and that's what our probably our immediate connection is. This is amazing because I think that hearing your stories about how Maori connect back through generations, for me, this felt like the most scientific explanation that I have ever heard in, in all the stories about origins. And I fell in love with the Maori astronomy exactly because Maori do trace in, in, your, in your culture their origins back to the stars and this is what astrobiology is teaching us isn't it that we are made of stars and and yeah yeah i think if you know if we look at the words of carl sagan you know we are stardust then all we need to look at is the most common greeting of the maori language and that is kia ora kia ora can say to you kia ora welcome kia ora thank you but also kia ora to be of the sun, kia ora, to be of life, yes, but also kia ora, to be of the sun. So you're saying that in Maori, the name of the sun is Ra, yeah, so, just like the Egyptian. Yes, yeah, yeah. So there are, I, I think, I think our uh, linguistic connection through the family languages is through Dravidian. Our ancestral links we have carried ancient names that I think are synonymous with many different cultures across the world. And yeah, kia ora is to be kia of or towards or of the sun. So something similar to kia ora would be tihe maori ora. That is something that has become known to a number of our different tribal dialects as meaning sneeze the breath of life. Tihe maori ora also can be connected to Maori to carry or ma from Udi if we broke the words down a descendant of tihe to sneeze yes or ti to descend from high he outwards expanding out ma from Udi descendant or of ra the sun the pinnacle descendant line of the sun. 
I love how these ancient words can be explained and how you can talk about all this ancient knowledge that is ciphered in all these words that you're using. And um, there, there is something else that I uh, fell in love with when I came here. And that was the way you were using the stars to navigate the Pacific Ocean, which, mm. again, when I came here, I realized it's kind of like half the world. It's, it's very hard. Or, or is it not? And I was hoping you can tell us a little bit about that as well, how you arrived to Aotearoa and, and what did that mean for Maori culture? I think it was hard whether it was in this modern day with all of our technology or in the years 2000 BC, 4000, 5000 BC when Maori started to expand out across the largest mass of the planet, the Pacific Ocean. At that time there was trial and error and it can be cited in a number of our discussions that we have around the way in which we ventured out and explored the Pacific Ocean, how our traditions started to change because we talked about, you know, you know, we talk about those who are lost to the night. Well, the night wasn't just the dead, but also the night was where we were venturing out across an ocean at night time reading our stars. So there was um, a, a huge acknowledgement to that innovation by our ancestors who ventured out through night and day. Hate their poor, hate their poor, hate their, hate their, through night and day to understand and to be able to to listen to the day and night in order to understand it so that their next generations, all the way down to us today, were able to utilize that knowledge in order to find this place, Aotearoa. And so that that was a huge undertaking by our ancestors to spread out across the Pacific and people almost every island of the Pacific. To us as Māori, we are not Polynesian. We're not Micronesian. We're not Melanesian. We are all, we are all one. In the words of one of our great navigators of the Pacific, Mopialug. Mopialug had said, you know, that there are no imaginary lines across the Pacific Ocean because the currents of the ocean take us from one, you know, one set of islands to the other for a reason because we are connected. We are connected genetically, through genealogy, through our traditions. And what uh, tātai arorangi, tātai kokorangi, Māori astronomy, whakateriwaka, that's canoe navigation, those two elements working together, what that has enabled for us in this modern day is to reconnect and rekindle our links with our Polynesian, our Micronesian, Melanesian brothers and sisters of the Pacific. They were never separated, we were always one. And it's great to see the revitalization of our knowledge that is reuniting our links to them. So if you do go to Hawaii or if you go to Tonga or Samoa or any other place in, in the Pacific Ocean, Easter Islands, can you understand their language? Uh, with a few seconds delay, yeah. There are, <laughs> there are issues, obviously, because the dialects have changed through interaction with other cultures. But the one thing that has remained the same is 
what is at the core of our language and the tikanga or the, the, the protocol and etiquette by which we apply our thought process, our perspective. So for a lot of Māori and Polynesian perspective, we all come from the same understanding. And so we acknowledge things in a specific way. And that has been probably the, the strongest link, first and foremost. But also the, the words themselves. You go to Hawaii, we have the old saying, Hawaiki is a word that has been a part of the Kanaka Māori, the Tangata Māori of Hawaii, forever, pretty much, and has the same origin of understanding as Māori, and that is that it is named after our ancient homeland. If we were to break that down into words, yes, it reflects something about the breathing of water up into the sky, which can only happen from volcanic places. Hawaii or Hawaii. A lot of travelling and a lot of beautiful stories in, in the Maori astronomy and in the Maori stories. So you mentioned Kongaro Ratau Kitepo, those lost to the night and we are heading towards a very beautiful time of the year here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And that is the celebration of Matariki, which in other words is the Maori New Year. And people from around the country are preparing for the New Year. And I was just hoping you can tell us a little bit about it. Sure. How can we celebrate New Year now? Well, it's very fitting that you brought up that Kungaro Rato Kitepo Hariaturato. At this time of the year, we look back on the year that we have just had. We look back on those who have passed on. We are reminded to acknowledge and respect those, for without them, our advancement to this date would not have been possible. And without all of those who have given their lives and their time, Nothing would be possible. So the Māori New Year, Matarihi, in the southern hemisphere, while we're down here in Aotearoa, is marked in winter, in the shortest day, but the longest night, Te Pua Nui. And around this time of the winter solstice, I believe this is the reasoning around how and why we observed Matarihi. In the southern hemisphere, when we came to Aotearoa, we were in the southern hemisphere, and so therefore we had to recognize the shortest day. We did not live for the winter, and particularly in the latitude, uh, halfway between the whole country of Aotearoa, New Zealand, being around 40, 41 degrees. We did not live on this latitude, and this cooler temperature. Uh, we more often lived in more temperate climate uh, uh, temperatures. <clears throat> uh, but when our people moved to Aotearoa, they knew they had to make it through the long, dark night. Te Nui. Te Nui being the winter solstice, once that dark time came, which was marked by the rising of Matariki, Matariki would rise, the first new moon, 
and then Matariki rising after that new moon was approximately the timing when our ancestors were recognizing the longest night had passed and that Tamanui Tera was on his way back to warm us again. And also Matariki was heliacally rising, which means before the sun, so yes. you were able to observe Matariki in the morning time yeah. because it's disappearing from the sky for about two or three months. That's correct, yeah. So yeah, it was a helical rising of uh, the Pleiades of, of Matariki. That is also connected to a number of our, our whakatauki or our proverbs that recognize that the rising sun and the dawn is very important to projecting across our year of what we are to receive and what is in store for us. So looking at Matarihi, the, the arrival of the Māori New Year, a lot of our country, particularly definitely Māori and Polynesian, and now more so our fellow Pākehā of Aotearoa New Zealand, recognise the Māori New Year as a time to take inventory, to give thanks to those who have given their life and energy to build better futures for our, our people, and then plan ahead. There was in the, in, I, I guess in the adolescent stages of uh, revitalizing our Matariki traditions, there was the perception and the belief that Matariki was a time of cultivation. Matariki is winter in Wellington, in New Zealand. But in the Northern Hemisphere, Matariki would have been a summer tradition. So it's not wrong, but it's just over the duration of the journey of Māori across the Pacific Ocean from the Northern Hemisphere to the Southern Hemisphere. I believe that is the reason why there was the perception that Matariki was a time of abundance. This is an interesting point that you're bringing here. And I know that in other cultures, Matariki... We call it the Pleiades. Actually, we call it very many things because people from... Subaru. Subaru. And the Japanese are actually looking at... Turaya. People who died. Yeah, this is Indian one. Thai. Daulakai. Yeah. Very, very... Uh, actually, everyone in the world who can see the sun and the moon can see Matariki. North American. And the Because Matariki is like one degree from the ecliptic. So then... Uh, but I'm just wondering whether time of plenty... And also this this thinking of the dead people is related to the fact that Matriki it's, it's a cluster of stars rather than just one. And also Halloween, right? Like mm -hmm. this is the the best example that I can come up with. Halloween was celebrated by the sighting of the Pleiades. Why, why was Matariki chosen? In our traditions of Matariki within Aotearoa, New Zealand, we have recognized Matariki as the place where the spirits of our ancestors will fly. That is in the north-eastern corner of the sky, as looking from, in, the, in a helical rising, from New Zealand. So that means that we face north, we look to the northeast, and we can see Matariki rising. In Aotearoa, New Zealand, it is believed that our ancestors' spirits would fly the length of the land, and interrupt to be a part of the whole 
wilder cycle where water has evaporated and gone back into the atmosphere. And at the same time, the wairua, which is a little bit less explained, the spirit of our ancestors was able to return back to the universe. It would go to that place of Matariki, and upon the platform that Matariki and Rehua, which is the red star, and Tares in the fishhook of Maui, which sits at 41 degrees latitude over the head of the fish of Maui, Wellington, our ancestors' spirits would travel along that journey, recognizing all of the stars that helped to lead them and their ancestors across the Pacific Ocean. Because before you could go back to the beginning, you had to acknowledge everything that had happened before you. And so this was... So this is linked to your genealogical charts as well. Yes, yes, it is. To some of our tribal genealogical charts and recognition, but also just to our basic etiquette, etiquette and protocol of recognizing the dead. When we recognize the dead, we will often say that they are like the many stars of the night sky. And there were thousands of them, millions, more than, than we can count. But at the same time, they are also like Matariki, the eyes of the sky. Matariki, the eyes of the sky looking back at us. They gaze back upon us and they watch over us. Because for everything that is evolving upon Papatua Nuku Earth Mother, we have a connection and a link to the rest of the cosmos. Because our ancestors had understood those links and those connections in a very intricate manner. They were looking at, you know, processes within trees and within the forest and within the growing of the seeds and how those things, not just because they were seeds, but actually because of the behavior of a tree and the way in which it related to the sun, the rising of the sun, the movement of the sun across the sky and the way in which those trees and their leaves or their flowers would turn and look to that sun and follow it. And then when the sun went down, they would close again. But then when the sun came up in the morning, those flowers were waiting there looking for the sun. And so our ancestors realized that there was, they deduced that there was a connection between the trees and the sun. And through that, in English we call trees trees. In Māori we call trees rāko. Rā, sun, ko, kao, nan. If you stand under a tree when it's a hot place, rako, no sun. But if you look at that word and if you broke it up more, rako, you would be nourished by the sun. And because of that, I believe this is the reason why our ancestors made a link to the creation of the universe story and what we call the process called tepudake, that is the birth of a tree the birth of the seed, and the many processes that create. I love it how the Maori story of creation talks about the separation of Rangi, the sky father, and Papa, the earth mother. And the only child who could do that was... Tane, tane Mahuta. Tane Mahuta, yeah. And tane Tokorangi. Tane Nuiarangi. Tane Te Waiora. Tane Te Wananga. In, in, in astrobiology, 
it's life that actually created the oxygen and it's life that separated earth from from the sky and gave birth to to what we are today so it, it is it has been fascinating for me to learn about all these legends and, mm. and stories that you are telling in your culture that are so resonating with me in a scientific world mm. so that's that's an interesting thing that you say that that tane mahuta tane te waiora tane tane mahuta tane nui arangi these are the many different facets of tane so often the word tane gets lost amongst the modern use that it is male but it's more than that it's about force and energy and tane mahuta tane te waiora is the title that was given to Tane when Tane gave the breath of life into Hine Ahuone. And that was known as Tihe Mauriora. Behold, the sneeze of life that gave life to the first lineage of humanity from a wahine, a woman. But Tane te Waiora in the same instance is very interesting because Tane is a wetewete, is a separator. Or a divider, or one who can define. Tane te waiora, wai being water, ora being life, the water of life. Tane te waiora, the water of the sun. Because of the photosynthesis, right? Yeah. Photosynthesis, oxygen, hydrogen, those elements that are recognized within. Tane de Waiora's name. Very significant to the process and the capability of life on earth. And so on Matariki, we celebrate life as well as death. Mm. We cannot celebrate life without acknowledging that which has been lost, that which has been achieved by the dead. It is a cycle. Yeah, it's a cycle. Every year it's a cycle. And and it, and it is a practice that over intergenerational practice of recognizing that teaches us a humility about our environment, about our vulnerability as humanity, but also about where and how we want our children's children's children to be in the future. They cannot be as, you know, anything unless they base it upon the achievements of those who have been lost to the night. And then they can be the children of the day, the children, the rangatira of tomorrow, the chiefs of tomorrow. So when we imbue our children with the traditions of our ancestry and those small achievements and that humility of that, then... It will imbue them with the humility to be able to respect their environment and the world that they're in so that we can go forward in a much safer way. Matariki has a number of different facets to it, but one of the primary facets in my belief is, and what I've been brought up as, is Matariki is about, first and foremost, acknowledging all that has been done before you and you can never become a leader 
unless you acknowledge those who have already led before you. Right. To give respect to those great achievements, but also to give respect to that great humility of those who have done things before. And then going forward to prepare your children for what they need to do in their time and their generations. So what we do now will be the pathway that which our children will walk on. Matariki wasn't just about us and one tribe acknowledging the dead of ours, but also we needed to look to our allies and to our neighbouring tribes that we got along with, and we needed to travel to them and tell them we remembered the work that your ancestors did. We remembered the work that your parents and your grandparents did. And we remember the loss. So Matarihi was a time for one tribe reconnecting their kinships with another. And that was a primary, you know, uh, practice. In the modern day, it's something to be revitalized. Right. Yeah. At the beginning of our um, kōrero discussion... I, one of the first things I said was that, you know, Māori astronomy, Tātai Arorangi, was about understanding where we are in the universe. And part of that is that when our ancestors travelled across vast the oceans, yeah. Yeah, vast expanses, not just the Pacific Ocean, but many other places, that our ancestors looked up and they were able to um, place themselves with the stars. Now, that wasn't because they were on the ocean and they knew what was happening underneath the stars, but it was because they knew where the stars were in relation to their point of origin. So so they knew every single star in the sky at different latitudes, right? Eventually, yes. But that was a process of elimination, hence the whole talk hmm. about those who were lost to the night, those who achieved that knowledge. Which is for why Matariki is so important. Yeah. To remember so Matariki those. is to remember those who actually went out and and tried the, the oceans. Because in other cultures it was a flat planet. And, you know, you go off the edge and you would fall into hell. Not in Māori. <laughs> in Māori, no. <laughs> no. I remember the story of Maupialu. Maybe you want to tell it. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, Māori and Māori Polynesian were all the same. So it was pretty much wrapped up in a nutshell when Maupialu and our tuhunga, our expert, spoke about when our NASA ex- expert asked him, uh, how did your ancestors know that the earth was round? And uh, Maupia Luke looked up and he answered. He just was like, wow, I remember when my father said to me, I look at the moon. The moon is round. I look at the sun. The sun is round. I think to myself, maybe the earth is round. And so from that philosophy, that's basic, very simple, but very clear and connected to our environment. And that is making sense of what you're, you're surrounded by not being lost in intellectualizing about something afar, but actually looking at what's surrounding you. And that informs what's really going on. These are the simple ways that our people look at our environment. 
They're not big and grand and highfalutin. They're just being connected with our mm. environment and understanding it. And common therefore, sense. Yeah. The common sense that is not so common in this modern day, but to our elders and to that time, it was very common. And what we want to do is we want to see that that becomes more common, not just to Māori, but to everyone. Because I think it is really important that everyone on this planet remembers what is common sense. And what we're all about. Yeah. And it's written it's written up there in the stars, and we can bring that information down because it's still sitting there. The difference about, you know, we have a Māori saying, The eyes and the vision of the people might change. They might get lost. The land will always remain the same. Right. Back in pre-18th century, that might have been true. In the modern context, people can move mountains away and change the whole landscape. But people cannot move stars away. Fatu ngaro ngaro he tangata toitu tefetsu, toitu tefetsu. The eyes and the vision of the people might change, but the stars will always be there. And in the recognition of one of my ancestors, Torangatira, and his son, Marangaiparua, he recognized the stars above. And he said, however many stars there are up in the sky, a small cloud could block them all out. But they will never be obliterated. That is a double saying. One of the points is, what he's saying is that that which has always naturally led our people will continue to lead our people no matter what and incur what we hit. Kia ora and kia kaha. Aye. Kia koe hoki. Kia koutou rā e mihiatu kia koutou. Nei rā te mihiatu o tira he mātau ranga Māori tēnei. Nō te tino rangatiratanga hei tiaki, hei manaki ki o tātou nei mātauranga he taonga o tātou nei tiriti o te waitangi, o tira he taonga o nehera i mua a nehera. The knowledge that I share is the treasures of my ancestors. I ask that you treat it with respect and you acknowledge our people and that it is not used as a money-making project. Kia ora. Thank you to Awaka for being our guest tonight and I have absolutely enjoyed your stories as I always do. And as once you taught me, e fiti anana fiti Greetings from here from Aotearoa. Kia ora and kia kaha. Kia ora. E mihi mauri ora kia koutou. Tēnā Kia ora. Thanks for that, Haratina. So our survey has been live for a few weeks now. Thanks to everyone that's filled that in. There's been some really, really useful feedback coming in, but only 1% of you so far have actually uh, given us some feedback. There are about 10,000 of you, and we've had about 120 replies. So please keep those uh, responses coming. And now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all of the other things that we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. So you may remember from uh, Jodcast Live, one of the questions that we were asked, that I asked actually, was, is there really a Planet Nine? There were a few people in America that had done some simulations to try and explain some of the weird orbits that we have in the outer solar system. For example, Sedna's orbit, which we think might be one of the first Oort cloud objects, is highly elliptical and it's not entirely clear why that is. And one of the reasons for that that was postulated by these people is that there is a ninth planet, roughly 10 Earth masses or so, 
lurking around in the um, outer solar system. There's no image of it. It's never been seen. It's only showed up in simulations. Nobody's ever detected anything. So it is really only a speculation. It's a, pre- it's a prediction of a new planet. Um, but it's not entirely clear how a planet could have formed there. So a few people have come along since then. Um, Alexander Mustill and, uh, uh, and colleagues uh, have released a paper last month called Is There an Exoplanet in the Solar System? And what they're suggesting is that the Planet Nine, the difficulty of how it formed where it is, if it's there, can be solved by assuming that we captured an exoplanet back when the Sun was forming. During the Sun's very early career, if you like, it was uh, very close to a lot of a lot of other stars. Stars tend to form in clusters. They don't tend to be isolated. Star-forming regions produce potentially hundreds of stars at a time. Um, very similar to the Pleiades, actually. If you look up at the Pleiades, that's roughly what the Sun's birth period might have looked like. And what they're suggesting is that the Sun, while it was in this dense stellar neighbourhood, um, captured a planet from another protoplanetary disk in from another star. And so, you know, we've, we've discovered hundreds of exoplanets so far. Uh, the nearest one actually might be in our own backyard, which is quite interesting. Again, there's been no image of it. We have no evidence for this whatsoever other than that their simulations explain how um, a star could capture a planet from another star. And they've actually come up with something not too far sort of removed from the Drake equation, if you like, of what the probabilities are that this might this might actually happen. It sounds to me as though they're postulating that the sun is a yeah, planet thief. Yes. In fact, some of the press releases that have come uh, out... Um, in response to this, have actually used the word "stolen planets," which is... <laughs> I think there's a Doctor Who episode called "Stolen Earth." So yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so they've estimated the probability of a successful capture as a function of the product of five variables. So five variables multiplied together. Those variables are p flyby, which is the probability of the sun experiencing a suitable flyby. P multi, which is the probability of having a multiple planetary system. P unstable, which is the probability of the said system being unstable. F wide is the fraction of the cluster lifetime that such an unstable system retains a wide orbit planet. And P capture is the probability of actually capturing it. Um, And they say that the probability of flyby in uh, a cluster that has planets, that has a star more than one star that has planets is one so that's a certainty it's going to happen that we're going to get close flybys but the biggest uncertainty is on these other parameters and how likely it is for example that you will have two stars in the same star forming region that are going to form their own planetary systems i just think that's really interesting that we've we've come across all these exoplanets how many have we got now about three thousand about 3,000 exoplanets. We've discovered them from far and wide. There may well be one lurking that we haven't seen yet that's dark, that's eerie, that's cold, that's in a highly elliptical orbit, and we're going to find it in the next few years. I really hope Planet Nine is true. I'd be really disappointed if it's not, and there's some other weird thing going on that's perturbing the orbits of these um, outer planets. It would be so, a great news story, really would. It will be a great u- news story. And actually, it's an, if it is an exoplanet, it <coughs> means we can we can potentially get to it within... You know, a few tens of years, we could send something there and have visited an exoplanet. I'm a little a bit uncomfortable with the idea of calling it an exoplanet, because if we stole it, it's ours. So is it an exoplanet? Do we still call it one of those if it formed around another star? Mm. If you steal something, I don't think it's yours, Ben. That's not really how it works. <laughs> Depends how long you own it for, though. Oh, if they don't notice. Exactly. And then it, beca- it can become one of those things, say, if you live on a bit of land for long enough, it is then yours. So squatter's it. rights. So maybe we have squatter's rights over this exoplanet. I can't help but feel sorry for Pluto when we're talking about an, you know, an extra planet. So that's after it got demoted, poor little thing. 
it's still interesting. We, we're still interesting enough for us to send something there. So I think Pluto's doing all right. It's true. It should never have been called a planet in the first place, really. Arguably, it's true. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but then it would have been nice to keep its planet status just for posterity's sake. It's like, well, we're going to keep Pluto as a planet, but anything else we find is not a planet. Like, like an honorary planet. An honorary planet, yeah. Exactly. Normally, we give dwarf planets numbers. For example, Eris is 2003 UB313. And well Sedna remembered. Is, Sedna is 2003 VB12. Um, wow. Pluto, <laughs> when we demoted it to dwarf planet status it got its own number as well and that number is 134340 and if you actually put those numbers into wikipedia it takes you to the right page it's really yeah. cool cool i have a bizarre memory for numbers epic memory for numbers yeah. <laughs> yeah. so in other planets news there has been another release from kepler Woo. yeah the uh, incredibly successful kepler mission has announced 1284 new exoplanets have been identified wow wow yeah so this means, and as I previously mentioned, there are about 3,000 exoplanets in total, meaning that Kepler has discovered two-thirds of them by itself. That's pretty epic. It's it? very impressive. Even more interesting is how, uh, how, how these have been discovered. So previously, scientists went through all the Kepler data by eye, looking for, these tra- looking for transits, so looking for dips in the, light, dips in the uh, luminosity of the stars when planets transit in front of them. However, this time round... They've developed an automated system called VESPA. So this has been tested on previously identified uh, planets from Kepler. So those uh, those stars which we already know have planets. And it successfully identified 99% of those. So they decided to apply it to all of the Kepler data that have been collected so far. It successfully identified 1,284 new exoplanets from this data, including some stars which have already been examined and these planets were missed. So it's a great achievement. I think this is probably going to be um, the trend for these kind of missions as well. We're getting to the point where so much data is coming from satellites and and these kind of surveys that it's impossible to examine it all by eye. So I I really do think we'll see a lot more of these automated systems coming in. Statistics from these exoplanets. So 550 of them are thought to be kind of Earth-sized, well, in the range of the Earth size, so rocky planets. And nine of these have been added to the, and I'm quoting from one of the mission scientists here, the Exoplanet Hall of Fame. <laughs> Meaning, Do they get officially inducted? Yeah, they get a special plaque. Excellent. So these are objects with a rocky composition and orbit within their star's habitable zone. So there are 21 of these in total now, and nine were discovered in this latest data release. So one of the mission scientists has claimed that they now think about 24% of stars will harbour potentially habitable planets. So planets around the size of the Earth. And in the kind of in this Goldilocks zone, as mm. they call it, where water would be liquid. Is that any change from what was believed previously, or is that? A... I think it's just a better constraint on it, really. Okay. Yeah. So Kepler continues to return useful data, despite a few hiccups here and there. So it was originally launched in 2009, but after two of its gyroscopes failed in 2013, sorry, the mission scientists only retained control over its motion in two directions. Since that point, NASA have been looking for ways to continue using Kepler. And someone came up with the amazing idea of using radiation pressure from the sun, so effectively the force of the sun's photons on the on the satellite, to to act as this kind of uh, to act as this third gyroscope. So they're using the radiation pressure from the sun to actually help point point the thing, which I think is amazing. <laughs> A lot of photons. Yeah, <laughs> and well done to whoever thought of that because it's absolutely genius, and it means we can still keep using this satellite for a, hopefully a few more years to come. There was a problem in April where the satellite went into emergency mode. That was resolved fairly quickly. No one's really sure what caused it yet, but it's likely to be a 
more of a software issue than hardware. So hopefully we'll get a few more years worth of data out of this satellite. And hopefully a few thousand more exoplanets at the rate it's going. And it's really cool that the, the number of problems that, that mission has had and it's still returned, still returned been so successful. just so many exoplanets mm. despite all these things. I, just, I really love the idea of steering something with photons from the sun. It's amazing, yeah. That's it's just amazing really that cool. this is possible. Yeah. So is that, is that happening? Is that what they're doing now? Or is that just something that's been postulated as possible? They're at least testing it. I'm not quite sure whether they've got to the point where they are taking data using this, this new method, but yeah. yeah. Impressive. So yeah, the next thing we need to do is determine whether there's water on these planets, yep. uh, whether there's out of equilibrium oxygen there, and maybe we can find our neighbours. So a lot of people are hoping that the James Webb Space Telescope will um, enable detection of water and a better understanding of the atmospheres of these rocky planets, but, but people are saying James Webb Space Telescope will be able to fix a lot of their problems, so... Who knows? It'd be cool if, if the first planet we manage to actually have a look at the composition of when, when we get to that, if we can find water and free oxygen there. Because that, I mean, there's this thing called the cosmic imperative that's, you know, that, that asks the question that given Earth-like conditions, is life inevitable? So if we, we look with Kepler or some future telescope at, at one of these planets and find water and the signatures of a life, it, it has really big implications for how common life is. Of course that's easy to test with uh, moons such as Europa which already have conditions similar to the deep oceans of the Earth where life is abundant. Yeah, absolutely. And Enceladus potentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the problem with those things is that is they're local so there's possible that there's been cross-contamination. We need to sort of demonstrate that Genesis has happened independently. Yeah. Um, Other than within our system. Yeah. If, if yeah. given Earth-like conditions, life is absolutely inevitable, there's no reason why life shouldn't have started several times over on Earth, even. So mm. there, True. Might, there might be two completely separate trees of life and we've only discovered the one. So it's it's really sort of has such broad implications, this search, that it's really amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so talking about uh, the possibility of life on other planets, um, how about big alien megastructures, eh? So I'll get onto that in a minute. But so what I'm looking at um, for my odd end is uh, there's a Kickstarter campaign coming out. They're looking to raise a hundred thousand um, dollars for uh, looking into what's been quoted as the weirdest star in our galaxy, um, Tabby, named after Professor Tabitha Boyajian, I think. Although I apologise again if that's incorrect. From Yale and uh, Yale University, so she wants to fund her further research using public uh, funds. Um, now, what this star is very, very weird. So essentially, what happened was in the Kepler search, as James has just been talking about, it was discovered that there were a number of strange things happening um, in the behaviour of the brightness of this star. Um, This was actually discovered by the public in the uh, public database search. There are irregular dips of about 15 to 20% of the uh, star's brightness. Um, And there's been many hypotheses about this as to whether this could be uh, exoplanets or, you know, asteroid belts, uh, gaseous clouds floating across. However, there's been one uh, perhaps slightly more ambitious astronomer from Penn State, uh, Jason Wright, who has proposed that this could be an artificial alien megastructure known as the Dyson Swarm. You may have heard about this. It was uh, spoken about a couple of months ago. Uh, So this is a hypothetical megastructure, or we think hypothetical since, you know, it could be real since uh, we may have just seen it, but um, which would encompass the star in order to capture all of its energy. So SETI had a look with their Allen telescope array uh, for radio waves, which could support this theory, but uh, didn't have any luck there. Um, so 
maybe there aren't little green men uh, that we can get excited about just yet, but or little red men, white men, whatever colour they want to be. But essentially, the main point of this story is that uh, so this professor wants to get a hundred thousand pounds from uh, the public on this Kickstarter by June seventeenth in order to investigate this star and the reasons for this uh, these dips in brightness. Um, in observing in multiple wavelengths, um, hoping to determine what elements actually are making up the things which are blocking the starlight, which will hopefully tell us what they are, whether they're comets, planets, etc. Mm. Or whether they're an alien megastructure. I don't know, how, how would you determine that? I suppose given there's no other alien megastructures to compare this one to, all you can really do is rule out everything else. Like it's true. not yeah. comets, it's yeah. not asteroids, it's not planets, therefore it still might be this. Oh. How is the Kickstarter going? Oh, so they've managed to raise about 30... Well, I could say exactly what they've raised. $34,857 have been pledged, uh, but their goal is 100000 So keep going, public. And now on to our own artificial alien megastructure. Ian Morrison takes us through what's in the night sky this month. The night sky for June 2016. Well, the nights aren't very long, but in fact we have two lovely planets to observe, certainly in the first couple of weeks or so. So it's not such a bad month after all. Let's in fact have a look at the planets first. Uh, Jupiter, it's now past its best, but it still stands out in the southwest and west at nightfall. Its brightness is falling slightly from magnitude minus 2.1 to minus 1.9. At the same time, the angular size drops from 37 to 34 arc seconds. Jupiter is now in the lower part of Leo, slowly moving eastwards towards Virgo, which it will enter in August. Our best views of the planet are now past for this apparition, but with a small telescope, one should easily be able to see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere, and up to four of the Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. Saturn reaches opposition, that's when it will be approximately due south at midnight UT or 1am BST on the 3rd of June. And so will be visible in the southeast at nightfall and will not set until dawn the following morning. It is moving slowly in retrograde motion in the lower part of Ophiuchus, but close to the fan of three stars that make up the head of Scorpius and about seven degrees up and to the left of Antares. So obviously a good time to observe Saturn, whose globe is 18 arc seconds across, and whose rings span some 41 arc seconds across. They make a beautiful sight as they are tilted 26 degrees from the line of sight, almost as open as they can be. It is rather sad that Saturn is now in the low part of the ecliptic and will only reach an elevation of 20 degrees when due south. I was able to actually view Saturn through a 16-inch telescope from a latitude of plus 29 in the Sahara Desert, and it was absolutely stunning. Perhaps a trip to the Southern Hemisphere is called for. Mercury. Mercury is a pre-dawn object for the first week or so of the month, best seen about 30 to 45 minutes before sunrise. It starts the month at magnitude plus 0.8 and an angular size of 9 arc seconds. This increases to magnitude zero by the 11th, perhaps the best time to view, but the angular size will then have dropped to 7.3 arc seconds. It will still be only 7 degrees above the horizon, so difficult to spot 
and a good low horizon in the east would certainly be needed. Well, Mars reached opposition on May the 22nd and came closest to the Earth for 11 years on the 30th. So June is the second excellent month to observe the salmon pink planet. It starts a month of magnitude minus 2, drops to minus 1.7 by the 16th and minus 1.4 by month's end. At the same time, the angular size is dropping from 18.6 to 16.4 arc seconds. Mars is currently moving in retrograde motion in Libra until the 30th, when it resumes its eastward path through the stars, moving back towards Saturn. Well, we shan't see Venus this month as it reaches superior conjunction, that is, directly behind the Sun on June the 6th, so not till a month or a while before we can see it. Well, what about the highlights? Well, from June the 1st to the 8th, Mars at its best for 11 years. It reached, as I said, opposition on the 22nd of May, so it will be visible for most of the hours of darkness. The angular size at closest approach varies due to the ellipticity of the orbit of Mars and to a far lesser extent to that of the Earth and will reach 26 arc seconds in 25,695 AD, a while to wait. At its closest approach in 2003, it actually reached an angular size of 25.1 arc seconds, its largest angular diameter for some 60,000 years. In July 2018, it will reach 24.2 arc seconds, but for both this opposition and that in 2018, Mars will be very low in the ecliptic, and hence at low elevation, so the atmosphere will limit our views of this lovely planet somewhat. Happily, there will be a higher elevation in the sky when it reaches opposition in 2020. Well, Saturn reaches opposition, as I said, on the 3rd of June. It lies in the southern part of Ophiuchus, up and to the left of the orange star Antares in Scorpius. Held steady, binoculars should enable you to see Saturn's brightest moon, Titan, at magnitude 8.2. A small telescope will show the rings with magnifications of times 25 or more, and one of 6 to 8 inches aperture with a magnification of perhaps 200, coupled with a night of good seeing, that's when the atmosphere is calm, will show Saturn and its beautiful ring system in its full glory. Like Jupiter, Saturn does show belts, but their colours are muted in comparison. The thing, of course, that makes Saturn stand out is its ring system. The two outermost rings, A and B, are separated by a gap called Cassini's division, which should be visible in a telescope of four or more inches aperture, if seeing conditions are good. Lying within the B-ring, but far less bright and difficult to spot, is the C or crepe ring. Due to the orientation of Saturn's rotation axis of 27 degrees with respect to the plane of the solar system, the orientation of the rings, as seen by us, changes as it orbits the Sun, and twice each orbit they lie edge on to us, and so can hardly be seen. This last happened in 2009, and they are now opening out, currently, as I said, at an angle of 26 degrees to the line of sight. They'll continue to open until May 2017, and then narrow until March 2025, when they will be edge-on again. Well, what other highlights? Well, June is a nice month to fly in the globular cluster in Hercules, 
and perhaps spot the double-double in Lyra, and their two very nice objects to observe in the eastern sky well after dark this month. And on the night sky page of the Jodrell Bank website, I give you a star chart to show you how to find them. The double-double appears as a double star in binoculars, just to the left, in fact, of Vega, the bright star in Lyra. But if you observe with a telescope and the seeing is good, then each of those stars is revealed to be a double star, hence the name, the double-double. A hard one to spot, but a challenge, is on June the 3rd, just before dawn. Um, about 30 or so minutes before dawn, given a low eastern horizon, of course clear skies, it should be possible to spot Mercury shining at magnitude plus 0.7, just 3 degrees to the left of a very thin crescent moon. Perhaps that's worth a try. Late June is a very good time to spot noctilucent clouds. They're also known as polar mesospheric clouds, and they're most commonly seen in the deep twilight towards the north from our latitude. They are the highest clouds in the atmosphere, at heights of around 80 kilometres or 50 miles, normally too faint to be seen. They are visible when illuminated by sunlight from below the northern horizon, whilst the lower parts of the atmosphere are in shadow. So, on clear dark nights, as light is draining from the northwestern sky long after sunset, take a look towards the north and you might just spot them. I usually give you something interesting to observe on the moon, and on June the 14th and 15th, the Terminator lies quite close to what is called the Alpine Valley. It's a cleft in the Apennine mountain chain that marks the edge of Mare Imbrium. Towards the upper end of the chain, you should see a cleft across them, which is called the Alpine Valley. It's about seven miles wide and 79 miles long. There is, in fact, a thin rill which runs along its length, which is actually quite a challenge to observe, and to be honest, I've never seen it. Over the next two nights, the dark crater Plato and the young crater Copernicus will come into view. This is a very interesting part of the moon. Well, usually first, so this should come first, guys. I talk about the heavens, so let me start. Well, we don't have a long period of darkness, but as the sun light dwindles away, in the west, one should be able to pick out Leo with its bright star Regulus, below which is the planet Jupiter, setting towards the western horizon. Higher up in the south is a bright star called Arcturus in the constellation of Bootes, and up to its right is the Plough, which is part of Ursa Major. The two bright stars, Dubhe and Merek, pointing towards Polaris, the pole star, close to the north celestial pole. Given a good low southern horizon, one will be able to see Scorpius with the bright star Antares. Saturn is up to its left and stays roughly in the same place during the month, but Mars, over to its right, will gradually be moving across the constellation. And then rising in the east is another rather lovely region of the sky. The constellations of Cygnus, Lyra and Aquila. Their bright stars Deneb, Vega and Altair make up what is called the Summer Triangle. 
If you actually go about two-thirds of the way from Altair to Vega, you come across a dark region of the Milky Way. It's called the Cygnus Rift. In there is a rather nice little asterism. It's called Brocky's Cluster, or more commonly the Coat Hanger, because it looks a bit like an upside-down coat hanger. It's probably all there is that we can see, but I do hope that when it is dark, if you're up late, you'll have a chance to observe our wonderful sky. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our listeners below the equator, here's our Antipodean storyteller, Haritina Magasanu, with the night sky where you are. Clear skies from the top of Mount Victoria in Wellington and greetings from Space Place at Carter Observatory in Aotearoa, New Zealand. My name is Haritina Mogoshanu and tonight I am your storyteller from the Southern Hemisphere. Top of Mount Victoria here in Wellington, New Zealand is where I always felt on top of the world. To the south, I can sense Antarctica's frozen breath. To the north, I see glimpses of my far, far away home beacons, Andromeda, Arcturus and Vega. They are like a safety net for me, something familiar. East and west are obviously looking weird. The sun moves from right to left in the sky in the southern hemisphere, leaning towards north. In the northern hemisphere, the sun still goes from east to west, but moving from left to right, leaning towards south. So as I said before in previous jodcasts, the shadow in the afternoon here looks just like the shadow of the morning there. But even after 11 years, it still puzzles me how the light still reminds me of the wrong time of the day, just the same as I still have to stop and think which door am I supposed to use when getting inside my car. Being in the city of Wellington that I grew to love after all these years makes me feel grateful for the courage to leave my safe shore back home to seek for my diamonds in the sky. Wellington at night glows like a net of diamonds itself and it's the best sky that probably any capital of the world has ever seen. As for the star lore that people brought here, well, it's the most spectacular by far. Which brings me to the month of June when here in New Zealand we celebrate the Maori New Year, Matariki. Matariki is a lunar celebration, just like Easter. As you do with the Polynesian cultures, not everyone does everything in the same way. But some tribes celebrate the new year, the Tauho, by observing the heliacal rising of the Pleiades, M45, or as the cluster is called at this time of the year by Maori, Matariki. Some tribes use the star called Puanga or Raijo from Orion. But no matter what marker they use, they observe its heliacal rising, that is, before the sun, just after the first new moon that occurs after the longest night. I feel compelled to mention the fact that they only call the cluster Matariki this time of the year in the morning. The same stars appear in the asterism of Tewaka Otamareti present on the November's night sky, and also three months later when they make Tetafiti, the Shining One. I spoke about these asterisms in my previous jodcasts, 
Nobody calls these stars Matariki Den. The small group of stars are just part of something bigger. This was quite a discovery for me because in the Western sky lore, asterisms have only one name, no matter what time of the year it is. As I was going to discover later, not only Matariki, the Pleiades, are part of the shape-shifting stories in the sky, but also most of Maori legends imagine constellations that are only seasonal. Back to the new year, here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, the beautiful cluster of Mata Ariki, the Eye of the God, rises before the sun to mark the new year, just after the new moon's occurrence. The cluster will start being visible towards the middle of the month, that is, if you wake up very early in the morning just before sunrise and look east. However, the first new moon of June is on the 5th, but the cluster will be too low on the horizon to see. Counting the fact that Wellington's landscape is quite hilly, and the fact that the Maori Tohunga Tatai Arurangi, which we know as astronomers, had to see the cluster visually before they could declare the new year, that positions, realistically, the period of Matariki this year, just after the longest night of the year, again, the winter solstice, which is also occurring in June. The next new moon after the 5th of June is on 4th of July. Technically, the period of the new year lasts for about a month from one new moon to the other and for some tribes was the time in between the years when everything would reset and people would visit the year that has passed and think ahead to the year that would follow. You can hear more about Matariki and Maori astronomy in this month's interview that I took with Tuawaka, Vice Chair of the Society for Maori Astronomy Research and Traditions. In Wellington this year, Space Place at Carter Observatory has organized two dawn ceremonies. The first is on Saturday, the 18th of June, and the second is on the 22nd of June. That is, of course, providing the weather stays clear. You can always check our website for more details. And also, of course, this month, we will be incorporating Maori astronomy in our talks. The dawn ceremony will be held on top of Mount Victoria, where we go every year, and it will start from 5.30 a.m. One thing I can promise you, there will be hot chocolate to soothe the most frozen soul, as our wonderful program manager, Rachel Ingram, always makes sure every year that we celebrate the new year in style. We'll see you there if you're there. Back to our evening sky. Bright planets light up the night along with the brightest stars once again. Golden Jupiter appears midway up the north sky soon after sunset. Orange Mars is due east. Jupiter and Mars are similar in brightness, but you can tell them by color and position. Cream-colored Saturn is below and right of Mars and fainter, directly below orange Antares, the brightest star in Scorpius. Saturn is at opposition on the 3rd of June, 
rising close to the time of sunset and setting near the time the sun rises. The moon will be near Jupiter on the 11th and 12th and passing by the Mars-Saturn region on the 17th to 19th. Low in the west at dusk, Sirius, Takurua, the brightest true star, twinkles blue and it sets around 9 p.m. mid-month. It will appear again in the morning sky to help point at Matariki. Canopus Atutahi, the chief of the Maori stars and the second brightest star, is in the southwest. Atutahi is a chief because it can always be seen in the sky. It is a circumpolar star, one that never sets but goes around in circles. Sirius Takurua It's the zenith star of Tahiti, and it was used so by the Polynesians. Sirius appears bright both because it is 20 times brighter than the sun, and also because it is relatively close at almost around 9 light years. Canopus, the second brightest star in the sky, is higher in the southwest sky, circling lower into the south later on. Canopus is around 300 light years away and 13,000 times bigger than the sun, but almost of the same spectral type as the sun. I fell in love with Canopus when I found out that is on board the Voyagers as a positioning aid. In fact, Many StarCraft carry a special camera called Canopus Star Tracker. Before the magnetic compasses, Canopus was also considered the South Star and navigation was made based on its position. And of course, Canopus was the navigator of Argonavis and it is part of the modern constellation of Carina, which also used to be part of Argonavis. Opposite Canopus, Arcturus is a lone bright star in the northeast in the constellation of Butes. Polynesians call it Hokulea, the star of joy. Arcturus is the zenith star of the Hawaiian Islands. Its orange light often twinkles red and green when it's low in the sky. It sets in the northwest in the morning hours. Crux, the southern cross, is south of the zenith. Beside it and brighter are Beta and Alpha Centauri, often called the pointers because they point at Crux. Alpha Centauri is the closest naked eye star, 4.3 light years away. Beta Centauri and many of the stars in Crux are hot, extremely bright blue giant stars, hundreds of light years away. They are members of a group of stars that formed together, then scattered. The group is called the Scorpio-Centaurus Association. Antares or Rehua is marking the scorpion's heart. In Maori, this is the asterism of Manaya Kitarangi, the guardian of the heavens, which is one of the three names that Scorpius has here. More so, the entire asterism of Scorpius is the zenith asterism of Aotearoa, the land of the long white cloud. This land is so big 
compared to the other Pacific islands that it needs an entire asterism to mark its position in the sky. Rehua is a red giant star, 600 light years away and 19,000 times brighter than the sun. Red giants are much bigger than the sun but much cooler, hence the orange-red color. True, though hundreds of times bigger than the sun, Antares is only about 20 times the sun's mass or weight. Most of the star's mass is in its hot, dense core. The rest of the star is thin gas. Red giants are dying stars, ranging the last of the thermonuclear energy from their cores. Antares will end in a spectacular supernova explosion in a few million years. Below Scorpius is Sagittarius, its brighter stars, marking the British teapot. The Milky Way is brightest and broadest in the southeast towards Scorpius and Sagittarius. It remains bright but narrower through Crooks and Carina, then fades in the western sky. The Milky Way is our edgewise view of the galaxy. The thick hub of the galaxy, 30,000 light years away, is in Sagittarius. Behold the Milky Way Kiwi, a dark patch in the sky resembling a kiwi bird, holding on its head, just like a crown, the galactic center. A scan along the Milky Way with binoculars will find many clusters of stars and some glowing gas clouds. Relatively nearby, dark clouds of dust and gas dim the light of distant stars in the Milky Way. They look like holes and slots in the Milky Way. There is a well-known dark cloud called the Colsac by the Southern Cross. Maori call it Tepatiki, the flounder. It is around 600 light years away. The dust, more like smoke particles in size, comes off red stars. These clouds eventually coalesce into new stars. Then, there are the clouds of Magellan, large Magellanic cloud, and small Magellanic cloud in the lower southern sky. They are luminous patches easily seen by eye in a dark night. These are two small galaxies about 160,000 and 200,000 light years away. Mercury is in the northeast dawn sky. At the beginning of the month, it rises two hours before the sun. It sinks lower through the month. Around the 17th, it will be left of orange Aldebaran. Further left of Mercury will be the Pleiades Matariki star cluster just appearing in the dawn twilight. To see it, you will have to learn how to count in Maori. First, locate Atutahi. In the dawn sky, it will be floating low in the southeastern sky. Tahi in Maori means one. Then follow along the Milky Way, you will see blue Takurua, Sirius. Rua means two in Maori. Then, on the same line, when they will get parallel with the horizon, the three stars from Orion's belt, Tautoru. In Maori, Toru means three. Tahi, Rua, Toru. Atutahi, Takurua, Tautoru. One, two, Three. If you join Takurua with Tautoru and extend the line towards north, 
just passing Taumata Cuckoo, the Hyades, and Redal de Baran. Following just a little bit more towards north, you will find Matariki. At 444 light years away from Earth, Matariki stars are hot, young, and blue. And with the naked eye, you can see six of them. With a pair of binoculars, you can see many more. The best view is with a smaller magnification binoculars, as they can fit more stars in the field of view. The Pleiades, or Messier 45, are about 100 million years old, being born just after the dinosaurs went extinct on Earth. The light from the Pleiades, Matariki, left the cluster almost in the same time as Galileo was pointing his telescope to the heavens. This concludes our Jodcast for June 2016 at Space Place at Carter Observatory. May you enjoy clear and dark skies so that you can always see the stars and always remember that we are made of the same stardust as they are. Kia kaha and clear skies from Space Place at Carter Observatory in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And since the new year will start soon, Thanks for that, Haratina. And now, on to the feedback. So, we're starting with... I'll just grab this card. Um, a card from... Now, it's either Anne Clark or possibly Amy or Amy Clark. Uh, apologies, I'm not very good at the old uh, reading handwriting. So, apologies if I've got that wrong. But, uh, I believe, was it Seattle? Yes, you're from Seattle. So, um... Dear Jodcasters, I would like to build a small radio telescope. Do you have any advice? Ideas for construction and any potential targets to try and find would be welcome. We live outside Seattle, which is lovely but often cloudy, so radio astronomy suits our weather. If you visit Seattle, you should see the Space Needle. On a clear day, the views are wonderful, and on a cloudy day, you can see what the inside of a cloud is like. The Space Needle is a compromise between two designs, a giant balloon tethered to the ground and a flying saucer. So, a flying saucer on a stick is the result. <laughs> Wishing you clear skies, and then it's signed off either, again, Amy, Anne, or Annie Clark. I apologise for the uh, problems in reading your name. Thanks I want, for the card. I want a flying saucer <laughs> on a stick. I'd love a flying saucer on a stick. Actually. And there's a picture of the... What is it? The Space Needle? The space yes, there is a picture, yes. Sure. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I imagine the weather in Seattle is similar to Manchester, though. It's hmm. You kind of get the impression it's a similar climate. Quite possibly. And um, there's a very successful radio telescope built near here. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've never Quite... built a radio telescope personally, so I probably couldn't advise you on the technical details of that. Um, I do I... know, though, that James Bamber did do an um, essay on... Making a radio telescope, didn't he? Or can you cut this part out? <laughs> <laughs> so, James, how do you build a radio telescope? Poorly. <laughs> you follow my you instructions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only advice I could give is that uh, essentially a satellite dish is a small radio telescope. So, if you've got a sky dish, then pull that off your house and have some fun. Yeah, yeah. You need to write a software backend for it That's and, a, true. and a data pipeline. <laughs> we might be better at answering good targets for you to look at. 
Yeah, really bright, things that are really radio bright, things like Cassiopeia A would be a good thing to look at, or something like Cygnus X1. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, are, are there any pulsars that you could be able to observe? There are brighter and more interesting things you can see with a radio telescope. Usually, we can't see the pulses from pulsars. We have to fold lots of time series over on each other to make a pulse stand out. Um, so pulsars would be a tricky target to start with. I would probably go with something a little bit brighter and a little bit more continuous as well, like Cygnus A or Cassiopeia A or Cygnus X1. Cool. But as for the building, I'm, I'm not going to get involved in that. Um, to be honest, I can't operate machines. I get data and play with numbers. As do we. <laughs> yeah. Um, and somebody, we're, we're lucky working here because somebody built a radio telescope for us. So A long time we, ago. We've never had to do it. Quite a big one as well, so yeah. it's not too bad for us. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things we are thinking of doing on the Jodcast in the coming months is um, a sort of short mini course on radio astronomy, just five minutes, five or ten minutes each month, describing some fundamentals of radio astronomy. So look out for that. And I'm sure we'll have some slightly more qualified engineers to talk to you about building things <laughs> yeah yeah it'll certainly be none of us <laughs> um we didn't have any email this month although we did have a comment on facebook this is from martin holden and he says i love your show will you ever have t-shirts for sale extra large please we would like to have t-shirts for sale because because this is a university technically a university podcast um there needs to be sort of special measures put in place for where the money goes. So we're not allowed to sell things. We're allowed to give things away. We're just not allowed to sell them yet. And it's something we're working to overcome. Um, so if we ever do have T-shirts, Martin, we'll be in touch and we will send you an extra large. Maybe a Kickstarter is a good idea for that. Maybe, but again, we'd Where's have to, the money go? We'd have the to problem. give them yeah, away. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't know, maybe we could have a design and you can sort of go onto Cafe Press or whatever and buy your own Jodcast we T-shirt. We could have a competition for a design. Yeah, yeah, that's not a bad idea, actually. Um, but at the moment, no, we have no T-shirts. A few of our ex-Jodcasters had T-shirts made for themselves um, on Jodcast Live. All the, all the ex-Jodcasters that we invited were wearing their Jodcast T-shirts that are now gratifyingly well used. Um, but currently, there are none in stock, but we'll keep you posted on uh, whether or not that changes. So we have no questions in particular from Twitter this month, but I would like to say hello to all of our new followers and thank you for all the retweets and favourites. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at uh, www.jodcast.net. You can find us on iTunes. If you like the show, please consider reviewing us. You can find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. Or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast. Please like us, ask us questions, etc, etc. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast. And don't forget to send us posts. The address is on the website. Thanks to Toa Waka for the interview. Thanks to Ian Morrison and Haratina Mogashanu for the night skies. And Sarah Nakuda for the website write-ups. The editors were Benjamin Shaw, Monique Henson and Charlie Walker. The producer was Charlie Walker. Until next time... Jod on! on!